Oh, what a beautiful passage that we have to look at to get today together. So let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, I just pray that your spirit would come in this time. Lord, that you would anoint um, my stuttering lips, that you would anoint our hearts to receive the truth that you have revealed in your word to us. Lord, I pray that this would be a blessing. I pray that we would be edified as we study your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you again this morning, Redeemer. Um, <clears throat> for those who don't know me, my name is Ben Mowell. Um, as Glenn said, my wife and I live in Cedar Falls. We drove down to be with you here this morning. It's just a little bit of a road trip. And uh, sometimes we don't listen to anything. Sometimes we talk. Sometimes we listen to worship music. But today was 80s power ballads. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine if Pat Benatar had been like a vocalist on a worship team? Man, that's not at all related, but uh, just some insight into my life. So this morning we're continuing our belonging series, and we're examining the scriptures together about what it means to belong to Christ, to belong to one another, and then belong to a church. And today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2 at a group of verses which is titled Christ's Example of Humility. So if nothing else, I hope that you take away from today Jesus' humility and how that serves as an example for us as we relate to one another. This text is part of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, um, which if you didn't know, is actually the first church that was planted on the European continent. It's fun trivia for today. Uh, and Philippi was actually, the believers there were frequently thanked by Paul for their faithfulness and generosity. It's clear from the content and tone of this letter that Paul knew he was addressing a mature and healthy church, especially because of the emphasis on reminders and encouragement instead of admonition or correction. This passage in chapter 2 may also be one of the most beautiful and elegant summaries of the gospel and what it means for us in the entirety of the Bible. And it also contains an eloquent logical argument where each verse raises a question that is answered by the following verse. And as we get into the text, you'll see that pattern emerge in more detail. So as one final remark before we get started, this message will be somewhat different than the normal pattern, both because we're in this topical series and the structure of this text lends itself extremely well to going verse by verse. So that's what we're going to do today. So if you want, you can open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at these words that Paul wrote. And what we're going to see is that Paul is pointing directly to Christ as the example which we are to imitate. So let's start in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort from love? Is there participation in the Spirit? Is there affection or sympathy? These are all rhetorical questions, right? The answer is yes, 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 and yes. So if those things are true, what does Paul say we should do? This brings us to verse 2. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So I want to draw this out here a little bit. 
Paul's joy is made complete by seeing those whom he made into disciples of Jesus, those that he helped find adoption into the family of God, live in harmony with one another, having the same mind, the same love, and being in complete unity. Many of you can probably relate to Paul from your own experience, especially those of you who are parents. As an example from my own family, um, I have eight siblings, which means that my parents have nine children. So there's seven biological and two adopted. But something that's really stood out to me is that my mom has said a number of times over the past several years how much she loves seeing her adult children being friends with one another. So if you think about that thought for a minute, we as her children are related by blood or adoption, whether we like it or not. We are legally family in every sense. But she does not find delight in the label which says we belong together as a clan, but rather that sense of belonging when it's lived out in ways that we care for each other when we have the choice not to care. So what Paul is highlighting is that when we make Jesus our king, we become part of his family. But the joy of being part of that family is through being unified with one another through bonds of love. This is not a trivial thing. Life together in peace and unity with other flawed and sinful humans like ourselves is really, really hard. And you all know this. Even when we're all making an attempt to do it with the best of intentions. So this point carries really strong parallels to Paul's message, his other message, in his first letter to the Corinthian church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This sounds familiar, right? It's almost identical wording. It says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here again, these are rhetorical questions. The answer is no to all of those. And he continues this thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-15, through 15, where he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as only through fire. 
So Paul's pointing out here, just as he does in this text in Philippians, that we can all belong to Christ and yet have different ways of relating to each other. We can choose to lay on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stone, or we can put things like hay and straw, things that are going to be consumed when they're tested with fire. So he's trying to draw out that we can have really healthy and unhealthy habits as part of the body as we're building on the foundation of Christ. So what then is the secret of living together as the family of God in love, unity, and harmony? So Paul gives practical application in the next few verses. Let's look at verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Friends, this is an incredibly high standard. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Not a single thing. When was the last time you asked yourself if you were being selfish? I can't think of the last time. Or searched your heart for the telltale signs of conceit. Do we ask ourselves those questions? So what does it mean to humbly count others more significant than yourself? The answer lies again in the next verse, verse 4, where Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This means that we should be just as eager to feed someone else as we are to eat. We should be just as willing to give up sleep for someone else as we are to rest. We should grieve with others in their suffering as if it were our own. We should search out and include others with as much fervor as we want to be included. We should love and care for the children of others as we would for our own. When Sarah and I went on our first date at the beginning of COVID, she doesn't know I'm using this example either, I wanted to bring a small yet meaningful gift for her. But I'd already discovered through conversation that she wasn't drawn to the typical and convenient things like flowers or chocolate. As I was trying to think of what she would appreciate, I looked back through some pictures that she had sent of how she was spending her time during quarantine. And I noticed that most of them included the kids of the family she was living with at the time. So I had an aha moment. And I realized that bringing gifts for the kids would be just as meaningful to her as a gift for herself. I learned something about her character in seeing how she loved her friends by caring for their children and how I could love her by caring for the ones she cared about. This lesson has been reinforced many times over through our friend Joe, who often schedules free childcare nights at the church so that parents can have time alone together to go on a date or whatever they would like. As another example, in 2011, I had the opportunity to visit the orphanage where my adopted brothers grew up in Chihuahua, Mexico. And while I was there, I heard a story, much like that of George Mueller, where the food stores of the orphanage had run out and there was no money to purchase more food for the about 120 children who lived there. So Papa Ed and Mama Rosa gathered the children and they brought them together to ask God to supply what they needed. And a few hours later, a mysterious semi-truck arrived. 
The driver had a load of food with him that he had been unable to deliver to the intended recipient and was going to spoil if it wasn't stored or eaten soon. So he said they could take whatever they could use. At that moment, when those kids could have easily been thinking of their own growling stomachs and empty pantry, the children asked if they could take half of the food up into the mountains to give to the indigenous Raramuri people who had been suffering the effects of a devastating drought. So that is what it means to look to the interests of others. And if you're asking yourself, how can I live with a faith to give away half of what I have when I don't even know where the next meal is coming from? You're not alone. Again, Paul gives the method to achieve this in the next verse. So verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have you thought about that before? That you can have the mind of Christ Jesus? Philippians is not the only place where Paul talks about having the mind of Christ. You may know that he mentions it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he actually says, we have the mind of Christ. So what Paul's doing here is he's clearly drawing attention to a distinction between a mind ruled by sin and a mind which is submitted to God through the Spirit. He draws this point out more clearly in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, where it says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the wording here makes it clear that believers ought to set their minds on things of the Spirit, but may choose instead to set their minds on things of the flesh, and by doing so, live according to the flesh. So in what way did Jesus set his mind on things of the Spirit instead of on things of the flesh? We see this answer again in verse 6, where it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Grasping for equality with God is easily recognized as a reference to specific events, like Satan's rebellion, Adam's fall, the Tower of Babel. We could categorize all these things together as the fruit of, of the, what I would call the original blasphemy, which is when a created being claims to be the equal of the creator. I will become like the most high, was their thought and aspiration. This is the mind of the flesh, the mind which sets itself up as an equal with God. Consequently, we can not only ignore God's commands when we think we are his equal, but we can also give commands to other created beings When we exalt ourselves, we think it is our right as superior beings to dominate others and seek our own satisfaction. This is one of the reasons we need so much reassurance and affirmation from one another. If our egos, our sinful egos, aren't being constantly coddled, the disguise we try to weave to make ourselves look and feel like God wears thin in our own minds. We strive for significance from a place of insecurity envy, and need. 
Conversely, it's almost hard to imagine how much differently Jesus looks at the world. The mind of Christ is different from our own because he is perfectly secure in his nature as God and does not seek to elevate himself. Jesus knows that the heart of God is a heart of love and service. And perhaps most convicting, Jesus knew and trusted the leadership of the Father so fully that he had no desire to usurp that role, as we often do in our sin. Jesus set his mind on things of the Spirit by committing himself to fully obey the will of the Father and make little of himself to achieve the purpose of his mission. So how then did Jesus reject our natural reaction to envy God and to grasp at being like him? The answer to that question takes us to verse 7, where it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So for this particular verse, I find the ESV translation of emptied himself to not be very helpful. Other translations say instead that he humbled himself. But this also helps explain how emptying himself is meant to be interpreted here. We say of someone who is proud that they are full of themselves as a way of saying that their mind is preoccupied with their own self-image. There is no room in their thoughts for concern of others. In this way, by humbling himself, we understand that Jesus was not full of pride or concern for his position or image. If his heart had been full of vanity or pride, he could not have set aside his status to be made like us. Instead, his heart was full of concern, not for himself, but for our plight. It tells us in the Gospels that he had compassion on the crowds who were like sheep without a shepherd. In Genesis, God said he created mankind in his image, where the wording implies a creation which reflected the splendor and glory of its creator. Among all the things that God created, humans were the only creations which he said were like himself. Which we could say at a minimum includes a conscious and self-aware mind, an eternal spirit, and a capacity to love. But here in these verses, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus allowed himself to be born in the likeness of men. From our study of Hebrews, we know that this means he shared our human experience and can sympathize with our weakness. Even though Jesus was fully God, his body still felt the limitations of our physical nature and being. As has been remarked in our small group previously, God the Father has no need for a bathroom, but Jesus did. He knew what it felt like to hold his bladder. He experienced a rumbling stomach. He felt the itch of fabric against his skin and the watering of his eyes in bright sunlight. He shivered in the cold and sweated in the heat. And even though Jesus lived perfectly and without sin himself, he felt the effects of sin in his body. He coughed, sneezed, and was just as susceptible to illness as any of us. He felt the aches and pains of a body groaning against the curse of sin. But more than this, I think Paul had something intended here by using a specific wording. 
It says that Jesus emptied himself and became a servant to be born in the likeness of men, not the likeness of God. The likeness of humanity here brings to mind our mortality, our brokenness, our limitations, our frailty, and our sin. Again, we can see Paul's reasoning more clearly in Romans 8, in verses 3 and 4, where it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness, here's what it says, of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So while the first Adam came in splendor, the very likeness of God, the second Adam came in weakness, the likeness of sinful men. Which takes us to verse 8, where it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're like me, these words may strike you as odd. As if this act of allowing himself to be brutalized on the cross was somehow contrary to God's nature. But in fact, there are many places in Scripture where we see God Most High describe himself as being lowly or caring for the lowly. I'll give you some examples here. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15 says, For this is what the High and Exalted One says, He who lives forever, whose name is Holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And again, Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So those all kind of hint at the edges of Jesus' character. But nowhere is his posture of humility more on display than in his words, which are captured in the well-known passage, of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28. This is Jesus himself saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that hit home that the king of the universe, the creator, the living God says, I am gentle and humble in heart? That's not what we picture from God, from the king of the universe. From these words, we can discern that humility for our King Jesus is not an act. It isn't a means to an end. It is his unshakable character. And by accepting human likeness and his subsequent execution on the cross, Jesus did not diminish his divine nature, but rather he embraced it. 
As I mentioned several weeks ago when we talked about God's upside-down kingdom, this is the difference in values which the world cannot comprehend. It's the humility that we cannot comprehend. Who among us would not rather be a billionaire than a martyr? What Jesus accomplished through his death on the cross was not only a sacrificial atonement for sinners. He did not shed his blood solely to mark the doorposts of our hearts against the curse of death. By humbling himself on the cross, Jesus rejected and conquered the very premise of sin. By refusing to have a heart full of pride that grasps and claws to be God's equal. By laying down his life, he rejected and conquered the power of death by refusing to cling to his own life in disobedience to God's plan. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 also tells us that Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. Another way of saying it is that he made a mockery of the shame associated with crucifixion. Jesus voluntarily accepted the death of a criminal and by doing so proved his worthiness as our living king. So now let's look at verse 9, which is the turning point of this passage. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So because Jesus was obedient in humbling himself to the point of death, God has raised him up and exalted him with a name that is above every name. In Revelation chapter 19, John documents the names given to Jesus, like faithful and true, the word of God. And it says he has a name which is known to no one but himself. But on his robe and thigh are written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which confirms his position above every other name and authority. But why did God the Father confer this name or title of authority on Jesus? Seems kind of random. Isn't there another way that God the Father could have recognized Jesus' sacrifice and his worthiness? The answer here is in, the, again, the subsequent verses, 10 and 11, where it says, So that the, at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So these two verses align with what Psalm 2.8 in Psalm 82.8, both explicitly state, which is that authority over the nations is Jesus' inheritance as the Son of God. Here again, John bore witness to this scene in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 12, where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
So God gives Jesus this title of authority because that is his inheritance. This is his reward. We as his children are his reward for the sacrifice of the cross. Friends, what a glorious day it will be when we bow together before the throne of God as part of that multitude and declare the worthiness of our humble Savior, Jesus. So, now that we've unpacked the meaning behind Paul's message to the Philippians, we need to ask a final question. What does it mean for us here today? Well, Paul has made a very clear and persuasive theological argument and pointed to the pinnacle of Jesus' humble service in his death on the cross. How do we apply that truth? Jesus told us to take up our cross daily and follow him. But most, probably all of us, will not meet our end by being literally crucified. So in that case, the crucifixion metaphor for how we put to death the deeds of the flesh and follow Christ's example on a daily basis. I think it's more helpful to look at another, more relatable example from Jesus' life, which we find in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. So I know it's a chunk, but I'm going to read it here. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, only, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So for those who may not be familiar, foot washing was a common practice, a common form of hospitality in the ancient Near East. Their roads were frequently dirt or gravel, and they only wore sandals, so the dust of walking would make the traveler's feet very dirty. In a poor family, the wife may have served guests in this way by washing their feet, but in a wealthier home, a servant was often given this task. 
but in no case would the host himself typically have been the one to wash the feet of his guests. So by washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus yet again demonstrated his heart of humility and service. He voluntarily accepted, well, not even accepted, he sought out the role, not of honor or grandeur, but one of mundane and practical kindness. And when it was done, he commanded them to wash one another's feet and to serve one another as he had served them. So how do we live in obedience to this command? I want to give you a couple examples as we close. So here's some examples based on Hebrews chapter 13. Living in obedience to this command might mean overcoming our want for a quiet afternoon and practicing hospitality as we introduce ourselves to visitors and invite them over for a meal. It might mean giving up free time to volunteer in a prison ministry and disciple believers there. Or if you want some examples from the book of James, it might mean biting your tongue when you are tempted to gossip about someone from your small group or coworker. It might mean making a significant financial investment in becoming a foster parent, adopting children, or taking donations to an orphanage. It might mean asking God for a heart of care and compassion to serve at a battered women's shelter. It might mean inviting widows, single people, or international students to your family holidays. It might mean refusing to show favoritism to someone who is wealthy or popular. It might mean giving money to a family whose home burned down or taking meals to someone who lost a loved one or just gave birth. It might mean babysitting for a single mom so she can go to work or giving rides to someone who can't afford a car. It might be as simple as putting down your laptop or phone and actually acknowledging your spouse or children through your time and attention. Friends, there are countless ways that we can follow Jesus' example of humble service. So I'm not going to belabor the point anymore. But I do want to highlight one more thing. Jesus is our leader. And this is how he leads. So as you evaluate leaders within the church, or as you desire to lead in church, at work, or in your home, remember how Jesus leads. Don't fall prey to looking for leaders like Saul, who are tall and attractive, but only try to protect themselves. Don't look at charisma or eloquence or academic achievement. Don't look at talent or income. Don't look for confidence or boldness. As you look for leaders or seek to lead yourself, remember that leaders who follow Jesus will be characterized by a life of humble service. So I'd like to invite the response team up. As we transition here uh, from the sermon, we're going to have an opportunity to meditate and reflect on what you've heard here today, to seek God in prayer and ask him to show you, ask him to show us how we can humbly serve one another. We're also going to take communion together. And as always, you have the opportunity to give. And then we're going to close in song, as we worship and praise our risen Lord, the humble servant, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for leading the way by laying down your life for us. Lord, as you teach us how to follow your example well, as your children, 
as your disciples, would you teach us what it means to serve one another, be faithful to the command that you've given us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.